Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took up a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It is a new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is, the me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, now as we've given our attention to the reading of your word, we pray that you would open our hearts to be those who receive your word. God, I pray that you'd give us understanding as we look together at this amazing passage of scripture, this meal that you have given to your church to be celebrated regularly. I pray you would give us understanding, but God, also that, again, you would open our hearts and help us to be receptive to the things that you want to say to us, the things that you want to teach us this morning. And God, we pray that as we ourselves receive communion today, that our faith would be strengthened, that our unity and love one with another would be strengthened, and that you would be honored and glorified in this church. And we ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can be seated. You know, at the end of people's lives, most people want to be remembered by the life that they lived, not by the death that they died. For that reason, sometimes memorial services nowadays are actually called a celebration of life. Again, the idea is that as we gather to reflect on a person who has uh, passed on, the focus is not on their death, the focus is on the life that they lived, the contributions that they made the way that they were significant or meaningful to each of us. Now, there is an exception to this, of course. And the exception would be for a person who died a death that was somehow heroic or somehow significant. In that case, a person might actually want to be remembered in their death and through the way that they died. So, for example, you think of a soldier who maybe heroically laid down their life for their country. Maybe they even earned a medal of honor. And, and in that case, they might actually want to be remembered by that act of heroism or that act of significance. So when Jesus, our Lord, sat down with his followers here in Luke chapter 22, and he instituted communion, a meal by which we would always remember 
his death, Jesus obviously thought that his death was somehow significant or somehow heroic, and therefore he would forever have us as his church share a meal together in remembrance of him. Now, generally speaking, during communion, during the Lord's Supper, which we just read about, we are remembering the death of Jesus. But what specifically are we pointed toward or pointed to as we receive these elements together during communion? That's what I want us to talk about this morning because Luke here, as he tells the story of the first communion, Jesus sitting down and doing this with his disciples, he's going to help us to understand uh, what communion is actually signifying, what it is pointing to in the death of Christ, and what that means for us as followers of Jesus. So this morning I want to talk about several things that communion is pointing us to. Number one, if you like to take notes in church, you can jot this down. Communion points us to a new Passover. A new Passover. We see this in verse 15. Jesus says there, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now it's not a coincidence, church, that Jesus' death, which was foreknown, that his death took place in the city of Jerusalem during the feast of Passover. This was intentional. This is the way that it had to go down. What was Passover? If we're talking about a new Passover, what was the original Passover? Well, some of you will remember from the Old Testament that Passover was an annual feast that the Jewish people celebrated in an effort to remember the tenth and final plague that God had poured out on Pharaoh and on Egypt for their wickedness way back in the day. And so every year, God's people would gather together and they would feast and they would remember God's judgment on Egypt. Because you need to know the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were in slavery for 400 years under Pharaoh and in Egypt. And during that time, things had gotten really, really terrible. Ultimately, it had reached a point that became unbearable as a Pharaoh was in power who was actually ordering the execution of all of the Jewish boys who were born. And the workload that he had placed on the backs of God's people had become um, something that was beyond them doing because the Pharaoh was ordering that the quota of work that they did was increased while the supplies that he provided them with and the tools that he gave them was decreased. So it was, hey, make more stuff, but I'm going to give you less to do it with. And so things had gotten so desperately bad for the Hebrew people in slavery that God, because our God is a God who loves his people, our God is a God who delivers his people, he raised up a Hebrew man named Moses to be a deliverer for his people. And Moses ultimately led the exodus out of Egypt, but it came through ten plagues that God brought down on Pharaoh and on all of Egypt. Remember, the plagues went from bad to worse. And after nine different plagues that God poured out on, it, on Egypt, guess what happened? Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. 
Pharaoh was still unwilling to let God's people go and worship him. And so God ordered the Israelites to take, listen, a male lamb without blemish and to slaughter it. And after slaughtering this lamb, they were to take the blood of this lamb and they were to mark the doorposts in their house on both sides and also over the roof of the doorway, the beam going overhead. Notice it's sort of in the shape of a cross. But they were to take the blood of that lamb and mark the doorpost of their house. And then they were to hunker down in their home overnight as the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn in every household in Egypt. You need to know that Israel was God's firstborn son. That's what he called Israel. And because Pharaoh wanted to take hold of God's firstborn, God decided, I'm going to take your firstborn. And he brought judgment that night. And he sent the angel of death through Egypt. And he did actually kill the firstborn of every household in Egypt. Except, listen, the households of those faithful Jews who had put their faith in God. And who, who had done exactly what God had said. And they had put blood on their doorposts. And they had hunkered down in their houses. The angel of death passed over because guess what? A death had already taken place. There was no need for a death to happen in that house. The death of a lamb had already taken place. And those who had taken refuge under the blood of that lamb were indeed saved. And so Passover was a judgment on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And listen, simultaneously it was a salvation or a deliverance for Israel, for God's people. And let's bring this back to us now. Just as the blood of the lambs delivered the Israelites from the judgment of God on Egypt, church, listen, the blood of Jesus now delivers you and me who have put our faith in him from the judgment of God on sin. After all, it's no coincidence that Jesus is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now in him we are delivered from judgment. Because it's not just the world in general that Jesus died for, but listen, his blood is poured out for you, according to verse 20. So notice the Israelites were commanded by God to keep this feast every single year after that original Passover event as a way of remembering God's deliverance of them in Egypt. And now in communion, guess what's happening? You and I as the church are celebrating a new kind of Passover where we're celebrating that in Jesus Christ, God has delivered us from judgment for our sins. We're remembering his deliverance. So communion then points us to a new Passover. Deliverance from our sins. Not only that, in verse 20 we see that communion points us to a new covenant. A new covenant. Here's what verse 20 says. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now there was a covenant in place with God's people. A covenant that was given to Moses after the exodus. 
at Mount Sinai, and it had the law of God written on it. But very quickly, it became evident to God's people that they couldn't keep the covenant. They would break it continuously, and God would have to bring judgment on His people. Ultimately, God's people were sent into exile, where they were conquered and taken away first by the Assyrians, then later by the Babylonians, because they could not keep the covenant that God had established with them through Moses. But through the prophet Jeremiah, when things were so terrible for God's people, God had promised that someday He would institute a new covenant with His people. It was going to be a day off in the future. And so God's people had this great expectation that someday God's going to do a new work. God's going to make a new agreement, a new covenant with us that's not going to be like the covenant that we seem to keep breaking. And so there was this new covenant that God's people were eagerly hoping for, that they were waiting for year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation. And guess what? Jesus said on the night that he broke bread and shared wine with his disciples, he said that in that moment, it was pointing to not a new covenant, but the new covenant. And for his disciples who were faithful Jews raised in that culture, they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They knew Jesus was pointing back to Jeremiah's prophecy about this new covenant that God would make with his people. And Jesus is somehow saying that that through my death that's going to happen for you guys in 24 hours, the new covenant that was promised to you through Jeremiah is about to be instituted. Now what was this new covenant? Well, here's what Jeremiah says about it in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The prophet says, this is hundreds of years before Jesus is sitting in the upper room with his disciples. Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming. See how this is coming in the future. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, I love how God points this out, that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God's saying they were unfaithful spouses to me. But rather than discard them, I'm going to make a brand new covenant. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Check this out. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So there's three major parts to this new covenant. The first is this, that God will now put his law within his people. Actually, he'll write it on their very heart. As opposed to, under the old covenant that they kept breaking, God's law was written on first tablets of stone. Remember Moses coming down the mountain with tablets of stone. But then later God's law being written on scrolls. Now God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm actually going to take the law and I'm going to put it into their hearts. The idea being that God's law For people under this new covenant, people who are in Jesus, God's law is no longer going to be this like external set of rules 
that we have to muster up the strength and motivation to obey. No, 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 no. God's going to do a new work. He's going to actually put his law in you, meaning that he's going to give us the resources and the motivation to fulfill his law from our hearts now. It's amazing. Secondly, there's this this intrinsic knowledge of God. He's saying they're all going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest. There's no longer going to be a mediator, a human mediator between God and man. All will know him. And this is as opposed to a hierarchical system of priests under the old covenant where you would have to go through a priest who would sacrifice animals and now there would be this mediation between you and God through a human person. Now that Jesus is our mediator, there is no other human agent that you go through to get to God. In other words, church, let me put it to you this way. You don't need me to get to God. You don't need me for that. Now let me qualify that with this. That doesn't mean pastors don't have a role. i got to say that so you all don't fire me after church. But... But the point is, you don't need me to get to God. There isn't this hierarchical system in place now where you go through somebody else to have access to the Father in Jesus. We all know God. Every single one of us, from the least to the greatest, know God. And we have knowledge intrinsically of who He is and what He has done for us. Third and finally, we'll see in the New Covenant that there's complete and total forgiveness of sin. As opposed to, under the Old Covenant, a partial and temporary covering of our sin through the blood of animals. Now, in the New Covenant, your sin's not just covered temporarily. Guess what? Your sin is obliterated. Your sin has been nailed to the cross and it has been consumed by the indestructible life of our Savior, Jesus Christ, so that God remembers your sin no more. And there's nothing you have to add to that. We have complete and total forgiveness. Everything you've ever done in your life, every harsh word you've ever said, every evil intention in your heart, every mean thing you've ever done to another person, every moment of rebellion against God has been forgiven. The debt is paid. You've been let go. You are set free in Jesus in this new covenant. Now before we move on to the the third thing here, I want to point out that all of the blessings of this new covenant, where are they found? Look at verse 20. All of the blessings of this new covenant are found in my blood, Jesus says. In my blood. Now this reminds us a lot of the covenant God made with, with Moses. Listen again in Exodus 24.8. This is kind of gnarly. Imagine if we did this today. And Moses took the blood, so this is the blood of the animals, and threw it on the people. (laughs) Okay, imagine you all stand up right here, and I grab blood, and I fling it on you all today. Be quite a radical church service, right? He took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So under the old covenant, the imagery was so powerful that that, that we actually had to see ourselves as somehow sharing in the blood. The blood actually covering us so that we could get the picture here. That it's it's through the, the blood, the death of this animal that we are having our sins dealt with. Hebrews 9 gives us some commentary on this practice in the Old Testament. 
And it concludes with this statement. Check this out. Hebrews 9.22 And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Can't happen. There's no other way for your sin to be dealt with than through the shedding of blood. Why? Why is that necessary? Why couldn't there be some other arrangement that God set up that doesn't involve blood and bloodshed and death? Well, Romans 6.23 answers that question for us. In Romans 6.23, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. In other words, sin is not just a parking violation. (laughs) You know how if you get a parking ticket, most of us probably, after paying our parking ticket and being irritated by it, we probably don't think much about it. right? If you got a parking ticket last month, you're probably not riddled with guilt today. You're not losing sleep at night. It's like, whatever. It's 40 bucks or 50 bucks, paid it, move on. That's not what sin is. See, sin is rebellion from the creature against the Creator. The subjects against the king. And sin is so heinous, it's so significant that it actually cuts us off from God. And listen to me this morning, church. If it is true that God, the creator of everything, is in fact the source of all life, then that is true. If it is true that God is the source of all life, And if it is true that sin actually cuts us off from the very life of God. Because listen, righteousness can coexist with sinfulness no more than light can coexist with darkness. So sin, unrighteousness, it actually cuts us off from the life of God. And therefore we are in fact in a perpetual state of death. Spiritually and ultimately physically. Because sin has removed us from the very source of life, which is God. The wages of sin is actually death. You are removed from the life of God. We see this, in fact, with the first sin. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember that episode. They are living in right relationship with God. They are flourishing. They are experiencing life to its fullest. And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, the serpent comes in the scene. And Eve here is talking with Satan. Again, there he's in the form of a serpent. Ladies, you can still talk with Satan. Sometimes now he's in the form of a man. Amen. (laughs) On a Tinder profile. Or a few aisles over from you in church. Or a couple cubicles down at work. Enough with that. In Genesis 3, she's talking with Satan. He's there in the form of a serpent. And here's what Eve says. Notice again the connection to sin and death. Listen, she says this to the serpent. She says, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you have a bad day? No. Lest you have a guilt complex? No. Lest you die. So she knew what was coming. If I touch that, which actually God didn't say touch it, but if I eat of that, I will die. And what does Satan say to her? Here's what Satan says. You will not surely die. It's not going to happen. Don't worry. Sin's not that serious. You won't die. 
And church, a lot of people say that today. Sin's not that big of a deal. You're not going to die. For crying out loud, God's a God of love. He wouldn't judge you for something like that. But again, family, if it's true that sin actually cuts us off from the source of life from God, what other alternative is there? Of course we're going to die. Unless somehow we can be brought back into the life of God and be given life once again. Therefore, if our sin is to be dealt with, something, or better yet, someone has to die. That's the wages of Sin, blood has to be shed. A substitution has to take place. Listen, a life for a life. And under the old covenant, there was a temporary provision where it was the life of an animal to buy you some time. But ultimately, we know that the pouring out of the blood of Jesus' family, the death of Jesus is what provides our forgiveness and therefore makes this new covenant possible through the death of Jesus, his life for mine, his life for yours. This barrier between you and God is removed and now you can have relationship with God again. You can be plugged back into the source of life and experience all the blessings of this new covenant promise. Let's move on. Communion points us thirdly I love this one. It points us to a new community. A new community. We see this in verses 14 and 15. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. It's not an isolated event. The apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. With you. There's a group here having communion together. Over in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul is teaching on the Lord's Supper, he's teaching on communion. Here's what he says. When you come together as a church, so there's a coming together for communion. Communion is not just an individual event. Communion is a corporate Event. It's a coming together of the church for a meal together with our head, who is Jesus. And oftentimes, in the modern church in the West, because we are so radically, so narcissistically individualistic, communion is just about me and God. And we forget there are people next to me that are significant too. And there are implications in communion for the community here, not just for you. Communion has both vertical and horizontal dynamics. So sure, there is something going on when we receive communion between you and God as an individual. I'm not downplaying that. But I want to show you this morning that there is something going on horizontally, one with another as we receive communion and it impacts our faith. First of all, vertically, between you and God, what communion does is, listen, it nurtures your faith. It nurtures and strengthens your faith because by faith, when you and I receive communion, you and I are taking hold of Christ again and again as we receive these elements. And as we linger over these elements, 
reflecting anew on the love and the sacrifice of Jesus, our faith is strengthened. Our devotion is increased. Our love grows for Jesus. So there is a vertical dimension. There's a nurturing of our faith. But check this out. There's a horizontal dimension as well. Communion nurtures our unity. Now, if you don't like the people in this room with you, this is going to hurt. Because the scriptures teach that we are all one in here. That we are all one family. And guess what? If we can't get used to that now, then heaven's going to be really, really hard for you to deal with. But communion nurtures our unity. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17. Here's what Paul writes. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, he asks, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And he says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Do you see the significance of that? That communion is pointing us to a shared community, a shared reality that although each of us are individuals, all of us are unified. All of us become one in and through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is why so much of the church throughout its history has received communion from one cup and from one loaf of bread. Where everybody walks up and we drink from the same cup and we eat from the same loaf of bread. Now there are many squinting noses in here like, ew, gross. What about germs, pastor? What about germs? I mean, isn't that part of the point? Think of it this way. My wife's germs don't freak me out. My kids' germs don't freak me out. Yeah, but that's because they're part of your family, Pastor Daniel. Again, isn't that part of the point? Are we a family in here? Now let me put you all at ease. We do have individual bread. And we do have individual cups in here. So all you germaphobes, you're going to be okay. We'll even bring some hand sanitizer up if you all want to just wipe the fellowship off today. So we're not going to do that. But we can't let that point, we can't let that imagery be lost on us today. In fact, I think that's why we've taken a great step forward in the way we we receive communion in our church by having all of us actually get out of our seats and come forward and receive communion from one table together Because guess what happens? We all get out of our seats and we're shoulder to shoulder with one another. Coming to one table together to receive, again, one bread, one cup together as a family unified in Jesus. Also, the fact that we wait until everyone has been served communion and then we pray together before we partake of it. Again, it reinforces this idea. It's kind of like when you go to a restaurant with a group and your food comes out first. Um, my dad always taught me, we're going to wait for everybody to get their food. Because when you sit and you wait for all of us to get, or everybody to get their food together, you're making a statement, right? And the statement is, I see you, and you matter just as much as I do. 
right? If the food comes to me and I'm just like, I couldn't care less and I just start going for it, it's communicating things about the other person and their value. But when we wait and we're all served and then we all receive together, it's making a statement that I see you. I value you. You're as much a part of this family as I am. And church, this is so beautiful. I don't want you to miss this because in this meal, the Lord's Supper, as it's called, or communion, as it's called, listen, in this meal that we share regularly, we break down all of the normal barriers and divisions that normally exist in society at large. Dr. Michael Horton explains it this way. Listen to this. This is so powerful. He says the hierarchical divisions. Is there hierarchies out there in society? There sure is. The hierarchical divisions between rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, I love this, he says, are suspended as the rules of this present age are overpowered by the melodious strains of the age to come. Let me read that one more time. It's so profound. He says, the hierarchical divisions between rich and poor, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, are suspended as the rules of this present age where all the hierarchy exists are overpowered by the melodious strains of the age to come. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, church, look around you right now. That wasn't rhetorical. Look around you right now. Look behind you, in front of you right now. Just look around this room. Let me ask you a question, church. Without Jesus, what on earth would bring this group together to share a meal? Probably nothing. I mean, when you look around this room, right? I mean, we've got, we've got different races and ethnicities represented here. We've got different generations represented in here. Okay, we have different socioeconomic uh, positions and stations represented in here. Okay, we have tons of different professions and interests and hobbies represented in this room. We have levels of education that differ in this room. What would bring us all together? Probably nothing, but listen to me. At this table, as we eat this meal that Jesus serves to us in the church, none of that matters. Jesus obliterates all of that. And he shows us that in him there is a unity that transcends all of those hierarchies, all of those normal categories that exclude people in the society around us. No, no, no. We come together as we eat this meal with one another. It's amazing. We feast together because God is our Father and we are sisters and brothers. Fourth and finally, really getting going this morning, so I'll I'll shut up. Fourth and finally, communion points us to a new hope. A new hope. Verses 16 and 18. Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then down in verse 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Point number four, a new 
hope. Not episode four, a new hope. That would be a Star Wars reference, but point number four, a new hope. Jesus says, I will, I will not eat of this meal. I will not drink of this cup again until, he says, the end of the age when Jesus ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. So church, guess what? This meal that we eat regularly actually points us forward to another meal. This meal points us forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When you and I are eating We're feasting with our God and our Savior and one another where sin is done with, where everything that is wrong in the world right now is made right, where all of the divisions that exist right now in the world are put away and there is perfect unity one with another as we are all in Him. So that in communion, listen, there's not just a looking back, which is the way that most of us treat communion. We just spend it reflecting on the death of Jesus. And we should, like we talked about, this is a new Passover. But it's not just a looking back. Did you know that communion is also a looking forward? Communion is not just a reflecting. Communion is a time of anticipating. Communion is not just solemn. Communion is also celebratory. Did you know that if when we receive communion as a church, if it's only solemn, if there's only sadness in the room as we're celebrating communion, communion, did you know we're missing a major part of the meaning of this? This is us celebrating communion. And yes, there's a time for solemn reflection as we think about the fact that it was my sin that nailed my Savior to the cross. But that's not how the story ends. We are not supposed to be a moping people. We are supposed to be the most joyful, celebratory, happy, fulfilled people on planet earth. Because yes, my sin nailed my Savior to the cross, but death could not hold him. Three days later, he triumphed over sin. He conquered the grave. He's alive right now, and he's going to receive me and you unto himself. And we will be full of joy, and we will be celebrating and feasting with him together forever. Ever. If that doesn't make somebody happy, we've got problems in the church. So friends, as we receive communion, it's a chance to worship. It's a chance to celebrate. It's a chance to look forward. Jesus established this meal as a way of giving you a foretaste of the meal that is to come in the age that is to come. An age where we're all perfectly united in Christ. An age where sin is no more. An age where we're all feasting with our God and Savior for all of eternity. When I was in college, I worked in a really nice seafood restaurant for a couple of years as a server. And on the weekends, because we didn't take reservations, on the weekends, the wait there would be like an hour and a half, sometimes two hours. And so people would be just filling our foyer, our lobby, spilling over outside of the restaurant, waiting for an hour and a half, two hours. Well, my manager wasn't stupid. So what he would do is he would have the hostesses every 10 minutes or so go walking around with these really tasty appetizers. And they just go walking around and let people eat appetizers for free as they were waiting. Why would he do that? Well, the answer is this. He knew if I can just give them a little foretaste... (laughs) of the glory that awaits them in some Cajun-flavored salmon, they'll stick around. 
And he was right. You'd taste this sweet and spicy calamari or you'd taste this Hawaiian pokey and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't go anywhere else now. Chipotle has nothing on this. We'll wait even if it's three hours. And in a similar way, friends, Jesus gave us this meal as a way of giving us a foretaste. As as we gather around this table, and again, we're seeing glimpses of the age to come where all these divisions are done away with. Where we're celebrating with Jesus as he serves us. This meal, over and over again, we're getting a foretaste of the glories to come, and it's giving us hope, new hope, for a brighter day in the future. And not only is it giving us a new hope, but it's giving us a chance to offer that hope to the world around us. Did you know, and I promise I'm done, did you know that every time we receive communion together, did you know we're preaching the gospel? We are actually corporately preaching the gospel to non-believers in our church and to the world around us. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six: For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Or another translation, you preach the Lord's death. You announce, you declare his death until he comes. And this is so significant for us as a church because we live in a day and age where we look at our, our culture and we say, well, man, all the young people, they're so visually oriented. We need to think of a lot of creative, visual ways to engage them in church. And so we're like, okay, we could roll video segments in church. Um, the pastor, when he's preaching, he can have all these props and demonstrations and things. And I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with that. But what I want to say to you is Jesus gave us the greatest teaching illustration for the gospel imaginable in communion. In communion, we are actually able to engage all five of our senses. When you teach and you do education, they talk about the value of engaging multiple senses simultaneously, how that sticks with people more. In communion, we're engaging all five of our senses. We're actually handling. We're seeing. We're hearing the explanation. We're tasting. We're touching. We're smelling. This is the most vivid picture of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us, imaginable. In fact, this is why very, in the very near future in our church, I'm advocating that we're going to go to an every single week model of receiving communion so that we can be surrounded. We can surround ourselves, I should say, with this table and we can proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes because I'll tell you what, the preaching that happens through communion is much more powerful than the preaching that can happen through my words. And Jesus didn't say, have the pastor give his best shot at this every single week until I come. But he did take these elements and he said, as often as you come together, do this in remembrance of me. What does communion do? Well, it points us to a new Passover. Jesus receiving God's judgment for your sin so that you could experience deliverance. Points to a new covenant where Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection institutes a brand new covenant where you can have intimacy with God. In fact, In Christ, you can now have God, the Holy Spirit, residing in your heart. It points us to a new community where all of those distinctions that exist in society don't matter anymore and we are all one in Christ. And it points us to a new hope because as we receive this meal, we are proclaiming the hope of the gospel to the world around us. 
And we're feeling our own anticipation of the return of Jesus where he will make all things new. Church, how can this not be a celebration? Church, how can this not be a moment of joy, a moment of gladness for us every time we come to this table? Jesus died that I might live, and Jesus lives that I would never die. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you for your great love for us. That you, although God, did not consider it something beneath you to come to this earth and to become a man, to take on our nature, and to experience that level of humility. It wasn't beneath you because your love was so great for us that you knew that only through that act, you taking our nature upon yourself, only through that act could you become the substitute for us, the Lamb of God who could actually remove our sins forever. So Jesus, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what the bread and what this cup point us to, that it points us to your death, Jesus, to your body that was substituted for our own. And Jesus, we pray for us that we would be a people who even here this morning as we receive communion together, that we would be a people who have our own faith strengthened. That we would in this moment as we receive these elements, that we would embrace you in our hearts again. Trusting in you, Jesus. Taking shelter beneath your blood just like the Israelites did beneath the blood of lambs in their houses back in Egypt. And Jesus, I pray that as our faith is nurtured, that also our unity would be nurtured, that as we receive these elements one with another, that we would see each other as equals in the family of God. That we would see each other as brothers and sisters to be loved, to be cared for, to be prayed for, to be helped. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen our unity for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.